Hello again. Thank you for being here at Covenant this morning. A special uh, greeting to those of you who are traveling. Uh, thank you for, during your travels, finding God's people. And a special greeting to those who are joining via a live stream. Uh, thank you very much for uh, being with us. Your physical presence uh, is desired. Your physical absence is felt. Thank you, though, for being with us. We're looking at a few passages in Mark's gospel in which Jesus does very little teaching, but more showing. Our passages from Mark chapter 7, beginning at verse 31, again, not so much teaching of Jesus, but showing. Little theologians, thank you for uh, being here. Uh, welcome to you. As you uh, hear this passage preached, you could be working on a drawing for me, if it's okay with mom and dad, of uh, bionic ears and uh, bionic tongue. That's weird enough, right? That should keep you busy. You know what bionic means? Maybe you don't even know what bionic means. I'm going to translate from Gen X or your parents can do that. Our passage again is Mark chapter 7 beginning at verse 30, 31. And before we read God's word, would you please join me in prayer? Our Father, would you bless us with the reading of your word, with the hearing of your word, the studying of your word, the preaching of your word? And would you carry us forward with that word that you would bless us also with the application of that word? Do all of these things, not by our might, but by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So again, Mark 7, beginning at verse 31. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and, after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephathra, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. This is the word of our Lord. Everyone here knows that when we tell people about Jesus, even if it's not by our words, primarily by our actions, that sharing of Jesus, actually, it doesn't always deal with the problem, does it? Some people, they hear the gospel from our words or they witness the gospel from the actions of our lives and they are struck by that and by God's grace, they become believers. Sometimes. And sometimes as they witness the gospel that comes from our mouths and uh, as best we can, we witness with our lives, sometimes the response is one of immediate rejection, the lost are offended, 
Now, I suspect that those are the ends of the bell curve, that most of the time, when we speak the gospel with our lips, telling people uh, the testimony that we have, the reason for the hope that we have about Jesus and who he is and what he has done, and as we make a similar proclamation with our lives, uh, behaving behaving in such a way that we show evidence of Christ at work in us and through us, most of the times that we do that, the result is rather in between belief and rejection. In fact, we're not altogether sure what the result is. We just don't know. Now, that can be a source of frustration. We want evidence of belief. I'm not sure we want necessarily evidence of rejection. Do we pray for that? Maybe sometimes we might. That would be a clear response. But it is God's will that as we show forth the name of Jesus Christ that most of the time we aren't sure exactly how the recipients are handling that message. God just sees fit to hold that from us and we wait and we wait and in fact we, well, we may never see at all. And yet we still believe that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation that no one is saved by any other means than the power of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We believe that even though, well, the results don't, don't often confirm that that's the power of God for salvation. And this is one of those passages in which uh, we come a bit face-to-face, I think, with uh, that notion that uh, really God performs his plan in his way. We're commanded to make disciples of the nations, to tell people about Jesus in word and in deed, but we're not promised that we'll get any results because God, he he performs his plan of redemption, drives forward his story of redemption his own way. And our job is simply to uh, proclaim uh, Jesus Christ, knowing that this proclamation about Jesus is is constrained by God's will and God's authority. God is the worker of salvation, but we're still proclaiming. And that actually becomes a part of the proclamation that God performs his plan in his way and that what we proclaim about Jesus is constrained to his will and his authority. That's humbling, but that's how we live the Christian life, submitting ourselves to the will of God, proclaiming his means of salvation, knowing that he's the only one who can bring about that salvation. Well, this passage is very uh, confusing. Uh, You only need to have heard it read once to know that there are some sticky issues here. And I'm not offended if you're saying to yourself right now, I wonder what he's going to do with that. Well, I'm going to do the best I can to explain with all the clarity that I have what's happening in this passage. But I don't entirely understand all of the details in the passage. I do know this. The first two verses, verses 31 and 32, they tell us about a body of people who know just a little bit about Jesus. The they in the first two verses. Who are these they? Well, they're people that know just a little bit about Jesus. 
We're told by Mark that Jesus is still in largely Gentile territory. Verse 31 says that he returned from the region of Tyre and he went through Sidon, which is going from, uh, from uh, uh, south to north. And then Jesus, apparently, he turns around to the Sea of Galilee and he crosses the sea. Now he's in the region of the Decapolis. It's not really a direct path. But Mark wants us to know that he is in the Decapolis. And, well, everyone who had heard the word Decapolis would know what the Decapolis was. These were ten cities that were on the eastern edge of the Sea of Galilee. And they're ten, set, ten cities that were particularly marked by a Greek culture. They're the kinds of cities that really would be intellectual hubs. These are the cities that uh, had this uh, cultural avant-garde about them. These are uh, cities in the know. In fact, archaeologists confirm that each of these ten cities had a theater. The arts were important. And each of these ten cities, although they're subject to Rome like everyone is, they're cities that maintain a bit of their own independence. They have their own identity. In fact, these cities produce their own coinage. It wasn't recognized anywhere but the capitalists. But they're the kind of people that are culturally engaged. In fact, you may not know the names of uh, Nicomachus or Meliagor or Theodorus or Philodemus. But those who study classics know them as notable mathematicians and philosophers and poets. They're from the Decapolis. It's that kind of region. Now, there'd be, there'd be Jewish pockets. There'd be various villages with uh, Jews. But the average Jew, certainly the disciples of Jesus, they feel a little bit awkward in the Decapolis. The Pharisees themselves would be aghast in the Decapolis. But that's really the point. If there were Jews who lived here, they would be a slightly different kind of Jew. They would be more culturally engaged than the average Jew. They'd be more aware of the arts than the average Jew. And probably they'd be a little bit less religious than the average Jew. Maybe even a bit more pompous. Remember how Revelation begins with those seven letters to the churches? One of those letters is a letter to the church in Philadelphia that says many of the Jews in this city say that they're Jews, but they really aren't. Philadelphia is in the Decapolis. That's the kind of region that Jesus is going into. But somehow in verse 31, look, look what we read. There's a they who bring to Jesus a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And the they actually begged Jesus to lay his hand on him. Who are these they? I mean, in fact, they bring this poor man, but are they friends with this man? Uh, one uh, scholar notices in verse 32 some weird Greek grammatical thing that tells him that the they are an impersonal they. They're a they that don't really care about this man. They see that he's pathetic and they know that he's pathetic, obviously, from his actions. They drag him and they bring him before uh, Jesus. They're perhaps just some people in a village 
And they might be Jewish. I mean, normally it's Jews that are always asking that another's hand would be laid upon them. That's kind of a Jewish thing, lay hands on someone. But it could also be that they're just culturally aware people. They know how these Jews think and they're imagining how this rabbi thinks. And you never really get the sense that they're expecting anything remarkable. At the very end, it says they're uh, astonished beyond measure. So it may be that the, that the hurdle's rather low. Are they looking for a blessing? Do they expect healing? I mean, the whole scene, it feels, uh, well, it just feels a little insincere. It could be that they're looking for a little bit of a show. Here comes Jesus, this great rabbi. It almost feels as though they have a lighthearted view of the significance of Jesus. And sometimes those in the world will have a lighthearted view of the significance of Jesus, but more importantly, sometimes we as Christians do as well. Do we really know who died for us on the cross? Do we really know the value of that blood that was poured out for our salvation? Do we really know that the life that we live is the life that we live because of his resurrected life? We too can be lighthearted with regards to Jesus. Although there's this with regards to what's happening in this scene. Do you remember when Jesus, he healed that demon-possessed man? Do you remember that? It was a man who said that he was possessed by a legion and Jesus took the the demons and he cast them into 3,000 pigs that then uh, ran off uh, into the water. This uh, man who had the legion was enormously desperate, naked, living among the tombs. And Jesus helped him. That was in Mark chapter 5. Well, this took place in Gerasa. I listed two philosophers earlier in the sermon who themselves were from this same city, Gerasa, which is in the Decapolis. Remember what this man did when Jesus cast the demons out of him. Jesus dressed him, put clothes on him. And what this man did, we're told in Mark chapter 5, verse 20. He went away and he began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. It could be that they in our passage are like those people at the top of the bell curve. They're in between believers and those who reject Christianity. You just don't know where their hearts are. And sometimes when we tell people about Jesus, we're derided. Sometimes they become believers. But sometimes the message of Jesus just sticks in them for a little bit and they become a bit more curious. And it could be that's the they of this passage. And the they, what do they do? They bring this man who is deaf and he had a speech impediment. Literally, he could barely make words. It's really really hard to unpack this man's story. We're just not told very much about him. The speech impediment is actually pretty important because really it could be just one word in the Greek that could cover both deafness and inability to speak. But Peter telling Mark, well, goes out of his way to say, no, and he had a speech impediment. That should stand out. Whether he was like this from birth or some tragic injury, he was not merely pathetic, he was publicly pathetic because he can't make words and yet he tries. That's the kind of man he is. He couldn't hear, but he wanted to speak. 
And perhaps he believes that he actually is speaking, but when he does so, it comes out nonsensical. (laughs) Well, who can get a man like this to make any sense at all? He's deaf. You can't teach him uh, orally. And he thinks he can talk, but he can't. He can walk, travel. Well, he's traveling as a pathetic man, and everyone knows it. But in verse 33, something happens, and we should take note of this. Something amazing. In verses 33 through 35, you know, we've we've been looking at the they who know little about Jesus. Now we look to this man and we find out that Jesus is the one who comes close to save. That's the heading of this main point. Jesus, he comes close to save. And it begins in verse 33. Jesus, he stops everything and he takes this man aside. In verse 31, there's a lot of motion, several motion verbs describing the vast distances that Jesus is traveling, going here to here to here uh, on land uh, across the lake in a boat. But he stops everything in verse 33, doesn't he? And he stops to give attention to the pathetic man. He takes him aside from the crowd. He separates him. There's still a small crowd with him, to be sure. And he meets him privately. Mark wants us to hear that. Jesus has a private meeting with the man who stammers. You know, to meet privately, when, did Jesus, when does Jesus normally do that? It's with his disciples. And he elevates this pathetic man to the level of a disciple, and he meets with him privately. And people are watching, but Jesus, he wants time with him. And don't forget this, whatever weirdness is about to happen in the passage, right? Whatever weirdness is about to happen in the passage, it cannot happen unless Jesus is face to face with the pathetic man. He comes close. And the scene actually couldn't be any stranger, and yet it becomes stranger because Jesus, he touches the man, puts his fingers into the man's ears. He's that close. And then Jesus, he spits. Very hard to describe what's meant by the spitting. But Jesus, he spits, and very likely he spits on his own fingers, and then he touches the man's tongue. The man probably had a foolish expression on his face all the time, his tongue awkwardly distended all the time because he can't hear, but he desires to communicate and desires to have someone communicate with him. But mostly he walks around like a stammering man with his tongue half in and half out. He makes noises, but Jesus touches Now, you and I might avoid an awkward person like this man, but Jesus, he doesn't. And not only does he not avoid him, Jesus, he touches the very point of awkwardness, his actual tongue. Jesus communicates, but the man, he can't hear. The man, he can't speak, but he can feel. He can feel. And Jesus is not afraid to employ any and every sense at his disposal that he might communicate himself to someone. So, this has never happened at Covenant, to my knowledge. We have Dr. Keynes here. Maybe he can uh, uh, know better. But 
I don't think that during the season of Advent here in this place we have ever used Mark chapter 7 verses 31 through 37 as an Advent passage. Advent is about Jesus coming. This is an Advent passage. It's about the incarnation of Jesus, the one who has come, the one who is with us, the one who joins in our nature and communicates to us in a way that we understand. Sinners like us in bondage to sin And Jesus comes to us in a way that we understand. He condescends to meet us, sets self aside that he might be with us. You don't find him. I tell you as a Christian, I didn't find him. He came to me and he comes to you. And you'll never rise to meet him. Because it is he who takes the initiative to bend himself down into the dirt to be with you, even if all you have is the ability to feel. He is willing to touch. So he doesn't come to put on a show, does he? He has real authority. In verse 34, he looks up into heaven and he sighs. The the look to heaven is a show of his intercession. He's speaking to God on yours and my behalf. But the sigh is going to become, over the course of Mark's gospel, a code word for judgment. So there is a looking to heaven, a willingness to intercede for those who are pathetic like this man, but there is also a sigh of judgment. Jesus takes our concerns to God, but he also weeps for our own hard-heartedness and sin. He takes our needs to God, but he also takes our sin to God. That's the looking and the sighing of Jesus in the presence of this man and others. Now, you see, this is the inside knowledge, really, because the deaf and mute man probably wouldn't quite understand that Jesus is painting a picture of Isaiah 35, but he is. Jesus, he always had Scripture in his mind. And this man who, is, who has this speech impediment, that word, it only shows up here in the Greek New Testament, the speech impediment. But it shows up in one other place, and that's the Greek translation of the Old Testament in Isaiah chapter 35. And Jesus, do you think he had Isaiah 35 in his mind? Scripture's always in his mind. And Isaiah 35 verses 5 and 6 says this, The eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf be unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mutes sing for joy. And when Jesus tells the man, Ephatha, he can't hear the words, but maybe some in the small crowd can. And perhaps they wouldn't understand that this is an Aramaic word that's used in Isaiah 35 about the coming of the Messiah and his power to bring about God's redemption. But I'm telling you that now. And it was an important word for Peter and for Mark and the Holy Spirit. This word is a word about the salvation and redemption that only Jesus can bring, and he brings it. He is teaching them that he is the Messiah, the only one who can bring salvation. And when the deaf man man with a speech impediment speaks plainly, they see he's the Messiah. Now, 
there's an application here, knowing that I've not answered all of your questions, but beginning at verse 36 and 37, preaching actually takes a leading role in this passage. And this, I believe, is the lasting application because the demon-possessed man of the region of the Gerasenes, he himself became a preacher. God saved him, healed him, and he preaches. And in verse 36, Jesus charged them to tell no one, presumably that he might be able to travel more freely and teach more freely. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And who could blame them? because they're astonished beyond measure. And it may be that their proclamation is a little bit weak. I'm not sure they caught the connection with Isaiah 35. And surely there's more to say than he has done all things well, even if your tone is beyond superabundance. But it's worth noting that this is a question that ought to be before us as we wrap up this passage. What do I preach as a Christian? I should explain why I think this passage, of course, is about preaching, because in verse 36, that word for proclaiming is a very famous word for, pre uh, for preaching. In the Greek, it's caruso, and it means to herald or to trumpet loudly the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and here it is in verse 36. They're doing this zealously. What about you and, well, what about me? What do we preach when we tell people about Jesus, even if we're unsure of how that will be received? I want us to consider for a moment the deaf and the mute man. What would he preach now that he's able to speak, as Mark tells us, plainly? Jesus, he comes to him in his face, and he touches his ears, and he touches his tongue, and Jesus is applying healing to those ears and healing to that tongue. He is the one who has the authority to do that and more. And now this man is able to proclaim plainly, what does he say? I wonder that. There's four things here about the proclamation of the gospel that we learn from this deaf and mute man who was healed with redemptive words from Jesus. The four things are this, and I'll conclude. This passage, it's a lot about preaching. The first is this, Christian. Christian, you need to tell others that Jesus is the one who took initiative to come close to you that he singled you out for his attention, that he was generous, that he was willing, even though you were pathetic, full of sin, not worthy of anyone's attention at all. Christian, this deaf and mute man would tell you that. You need to preach that Jesus, he came close to you. That's the first thing. The second thing is this. You need to tell them that Jesus is the one who made you well, that you're not the same person that Jesus did something to you, dramatic, and that no one else could do. Paul tells us that he gave you a new heart. He is the one who has changed your status before God such that in God's eyes you are righteous and pure. Christian, tell others that he and only he has made you well. Tell others that he is clearly the Messiah, the anointed of God, the subject matter of the Old Testament, the uh, deliverer of that which God has promised. He is the sole giver of redemption. This means 
that he has the power to make the recipients of the gospel well, too. Tell them that he came close to you. Tell them that he made you well. Tell them that he is clearly God's anointed one for salvation. And tell them this, that he gave you a purpose in life. He restored your ears and he restored your tongue, that they would be restored to their, in, their intended purpose to listen carefully to the God who is saved and to tell others about him. That's the purpose of your ears. That's the purpose of your tongue. Those are the four things that we're to tell others in the gospel, even as we acknowledge that God performs his plan in his own way. And what we proclaim about Jesus is constrained to God's will and God's authority. The clarion call for us as Christians is that we are called to no longer persist in our stopped up ears and our stopped up mouths. Look what Jesus has the power to do and has done in your salvation. And yet we forget this because our hearts are hard. But Christian, he has operated on you at the level of your heart that you may proclaim the gospel of grace to others. Tell them he came close to you. Tell them he made you well. Tell them that there is only one Messiah availed for them. And tell them that he has given you a higher purpose, a better use of your ears and your tongue. Tell them. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we thank you for this man who was given the ability to hear and the ability to speak. Father, would you make your church a church that longs to use those ears and those tongues to the glory of Jesus. Amen.